1 p.m. on the East Coast, the 6th of September. Now, Carter, before we get into this, uh, back in my commodities trading days, each month had an, a letter that was associated with it. So for September, the letter was U. For October, the letter was V. The problem, of course, is when you're writing things down quickly and speed is of the essence, U's and V's became very similar, obviously. You know, U, V, they all sort of looked alike. So the geniuses down, and they were brilliant people, by the way, on the floor of the exchange, instead of writing a V, they would write an upside down V. And that would be October. That's a little inside baseball shit that nobody probably cares about it. But this is Market Call. Carter Worth, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan not with us today, taking a much needed and deserved day off. Today's Market Call brought to you by Backset financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. I'm powered by a number of things, Carter, not least of which the fact that you joined us last night on the set of Fast Money. Now, what a lot of people don't know, you're like, you're an original, you're an OG, man. You were doing this shit all through 06 too. I mean, I knew Carter Worth long before I knew a lot of these people. So it was great having you on. You know, my favorite was always saying Christmas crude. That's a yes, Z, of Christmas course. crude. Christmas crude. It's always a liquid, more liquid than October or whatever. But uh, anyway, and then there's always that fun part going out to the following year, right? <laughs> you know, it's red. Also, that would be red these. Yes. And of yes. course, December is the letter Z. All right. Listen, we could talk about this all day. And I would, by the way, maybe we'll do a show about it. But Let's just start off with what people are talking about. And it starts off with Marco Kalanovic of JP Morgan talking about the potential for some volatility becoming. And I think, listen, this is echoing a lot of the things that I think you've brought forth over the last you know, few weeks, month or so. And now Marco's on it. And it's, listen, 24 hours or one day does not a trend make, but it's, it's playing out today. A lot of the things that we've been talking about um, and that have not had impact on the market to date or seemingly having it all in one day. But here we are talking about the potential for, his words, not mine, interest rate shock, consumer credit, funding of impact on employment, all the things that we're talking about. And he's sort of um, echoing or he's bringing to light in his note this morning. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we are always left with this. If you think about it, the rate on 10-year treasuries is exactly where it was essentially a year ago, right? We In October at the peak. And yet that was the low for the market. So mm-hmm. equities, um, rates are where they were when equities were, you know, 20% lower. The question is, it's always about the rate of change, right? So a year ago, we were spiking uh, ever so aggressively from basically, you know, one, two, three, all of a sudden above 4%. Uh, there was a great um, re-rating of equities. Now, interesting, we're at the exact same level, 10-year yields at four plus, but equities, of course, are well off their lows. The really, the, 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 um, the, the thing that never squares, right, is extrapolating rate of change. When oil spikes, right, um, because of the Ukraine invasion, Wall Street Report's putting out uh, reports about 250 a barrel if this really gets out of control. Well, no kidding if it gets out of control. That's, uh, but it never seems to. And, and so the question here is, if one is trying a calm, deliberate, measured uh, way, trying to figure out what Apple, for instance, is worth, three years hence, and trying to figure out what its future cash flow is and what discount rate to put on it, does the cost of tenure money at 3.8 or 4.4 matter? 
Not at all. But that is the vagary of Wall Street. We have this circumstance where it's always this knee jerk. And so, again, speaking about rates, the fact that just four or five weeks ago, there was talk of you know, recession, oil was at $65 a barrel, rates were, you know, back at 375. Now, all of a sudden, it's um, higher for longer. It's always so fickle. It's incredible. And I'm just reading through some of the comments. Again, I get a kick out of it. I'll highlight some later. But you brought a bevy of charts. I don't know if that's two V's or two Y's, but it means a lot. So let's go through them. It starts with the S&P. Yeah, this is just something we just actually tweeted out for fun in the sense that, that and we put, it was about uh, what a what a bloody waste of time. So let's put some lines in here. What we know is that basically from the first days uh, after Labor Day versus two years ago, we have made no progress. And one could say, well, what's the point? The point is that this is a risk asset. If you look at the next iteration, over the past two years, the best you've had is you're up 7%. You've lost as much as almost 23, only to be returned to where you were. Um, that, on a risk-adjusted basis, is about the worst thing you could do with your money. I mean, the worst thing, right? Uh, there are very few investments. If you if put it this way, if someone came to you, I've got this great opportunity. What is it? Is it is it a hedge fund? Is it is it a a new um, family? What? Well, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but here's what you're going to get: two years unch. One point you'll be down 23. One point you'll be up seven, but you'll get your money back at the end of it. Mm-hmm. No one would sign up for that. And so the question is, from here, are we really on the cusp of great returns uh, and meaningful upside, or is it likely to be more of this, a bloody waste of time? I think that's the real risk. It's yeah, like- and it's interesting. I agree with you. And it's I'm reading some comments. And somebody said, well, what if you bought in October 2022? Well, congratulations. You were that one person that obviously was were able to buy the lows. Um, you know, and everybody in retrospect, are those people the oddity of all of that is you know there were two times we were bullish last year i remember both of them it was june the middle of june of last year uh when the vix spiked up to about 34 and a half 35 and we talked about that being a moment in time where okay the risk reward set up well to the long side and we actually said the market could rally probably 16 17% i think it actually rallied more than that and we got bullish again in October for the same reasons. The same set of things were put in place. The VIX really was spiking. I think, a matter of fact, on a Monday in October, some of the commentary was, was China uninvestable? So we're hearing a lot of the same types of things. And we thought, again, the market was probably on its way for another similar rally. What I got wrong from that point on was the fact that you know, in December onward, the fact that the market continued to do this creep higher. And we've talked about that a number of times. So anyway, there you go. But here we are in this point in time, and you've you've brought your charts, you've driven, you've drawn the line. So let's take a look at them. Yeah, just in terms of the what if, you know, there there's, there's language and words that are not relevant um, in a lot of uh, undertakings and endeavors. Like what if after high school football, I've been, I played in, in Athens, Georgia, and then I played for the NFL. What if? I mean, what the hell does that mean? What if you bought at the bottom? What if you sold at the bottom? What if you bought? We're only all as good as our last trade, and we've all got bad ones and good ones. But, you know, talking about what if, there are no what ifs. There's just, over time, can we try to prosper by applying techniques and rules? And, and then at that point, 
it is a, a risky business. But let's look at the lines as they draw themselves. So here's the S&P from the what if low. Go ahead, let's put it in. That's a mathematically parallel channel. I didn't manipulate the lines. They are what they are. And um, if you put some arrows in, uh, basically like a pinball machine, we've been sort of ricocheting off the bottom, off the top. Now that red arrow, of course, is a judgment. Uh, I think ultimately we will get to uh, close to the lower band. And uh, the question here and now is, is the S&P as a bet looking out three to six months or three to six hours or three to six weeks, whoever you are in the market and what's your preferred time frame? Is it a better buy or a sell? I think it's a better sell here than a buy. You know, I agree with you, uh, you know, and, and so and people will say you, you, you guys are living in your echo chamber. I get it. But there are a number of reasons. Funny, Doug Cass put out a great piece. I know Doug is watching right now and we will have Doug Cass back on. But, you know, he made some observations, some of the corollaries that he's seeing between 1987, the fall of 87 and some of the things he's seeing now. And, you know, you can say, oh, you guys are being fear mongers and that stuff. Well, no, we're just trying to point out some of the things uh, that are happening now that happened then. And the things that people were not taking into consideration were just sort of saying, that's oh, not a big deal. Then you have similar voices now saying none of this stuff is a big deal. I'm of the belief that a lot of this stuff is a big deal. Until the last whatever week or so, the market seemingly doesn't care. I think there's going to come a point where the market does care. And I think, you know, the chart you just drew bears that out. And I think you would say, Carter, we are still in an up channel since the fall of last year. The highlighted area suggests exactly that. So we could trade down to 4250-ish, 4300, and still be in this up channel. I think there's something more dire that's going to happen, but let's just do the here and now. Up channels in place. With that said, you see movement to the downside in that channel. I do. That's my that's my hunch. Let's take a look at yields, and this is a conversation we had. Last week, um, and again, your chart is still intact. I want to be clear. I, the movement in 10-year yields from 436-ish down to 405-ish, back to, I think today we're either side of 430. I think we're 429 and a half or so. Dramatic moves in a short period of time. But let's go through the charts that you brought, because I think what you'll say is nothing has changed. These tops are still in place. Obviously, until they're not, and we go ratcheting yeah. through, or until they break down here. So let's talk. Yeah. Well, let's. We have two, five, ten, and three. Let's go through quickly, and then we'll go back. Two, five, ten, thirty. And what do we know? It's all the same damn setup. Of course it is. So the question is, leave it on thirty here. Why not? Do we ultimately exceed the year ago highs? And again, to think about it, just to put it in context, we are at the same level now. Call it four and a half percent as we were in October. That's eleven months ago. And yet that October, we were at four and a half, the market was at a low. Now S&P is well off that low because it's about the rate of change. In October, people were extrapolating, you know, 7% right away. Now here we are a year later and we're still at four and a half. The question is, are we going to 7%? Do we really break out? I don't think so. Uh, again, that's, a, that's subjective. That's a judgment. And that's mine. A lot of people, um, you know, there's record uh, shorts. Uh, in the treasuries, uh, as as you know, as in positioning in the futures, basically uh, the consensus is higher yields and meaningfully higher yields. Uh, we shall see. My hunch is otherwise. It's you know it's it's again the commentary is is just fascinating to listen to, and 
somebody has a question about Tilray, and if you can pull up a Tilray chart real quick, um, because it has bounced recently. I mean, obviously, this stock was dead in the water for a long time, so I don't know if we can do real time. What I'll say, though, is this. Uh, Erwin Simon, who runs Tilray, if you go back and look at his history with brands, he was at a company called Haynes Celestial a year ago. He's made acquisitions. I think recently, and don't at me if I'm wrong, because this is the first time I'm really thinking about it. I think they bought eight of Anheuser-Busch's properties uh, a month or so ago. It might have been a little bit longer. So Tilray is definitely in the they're in the, the phase where they're making acquisitions strategically. So if you believe in Erwin Simon, if you believe in his track record, yes, the stock has had a significant move. But if we could go a little longer term out, you'll see in the context of where it was and you know what it's been doing over the yeah, there you go. So I just want to be crystal clear. I mean, despite the move, if you look at this over time, we really haven't done all that much. But I do agree that in this environment, Tilray might be interesting. And going back to yields real quick, I think yields are going higher. I think yields are going higher for the wrong reasons. So if yields do go higher here, I don't think equities will like that. Conversely, though, and I think Carter just quickly opined on this, if Carter is right and yields have topped out here and start going not dramatically lower, but starting to do the grind lower, one has to ask themselves, what is happening to make yields go lower? I would submit it could be one of two things or both those things. It could be in a flight to quality in the form of treasury bonds and maybe the U.S. dollar if the market is selling off or yields are going lower because the economy is sort of grinding to a slowdown. But neither one of those, Carter, are obviously equity bullish. Thoughts on that? Am I, re- am I again, am I in my own echo chamber or am I looking at this no, the right that's, way? No, that's it. I mean, rates to move meaningfully in, in one direction or another have to have some force causing that or some theme. And uh, surely, I mean, uh, look, there, 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 there's a case to be made, right, that commodities move in oil, for instance, just of late, even though the dollar is strong, oil bucking that. But OJ is at multi-year highs. Uh, sugar. Um, cocoa, that there's going to be uh, more inflation uh, for longer and that basically the Fed is not done and that rates have to do six and a half, seven percent. But if that's really what's coming, the odds of the equity market um, sort of uh, hanging in are very low. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, it's, so- and it's interesting. So here's a comment. It doesn't have to be a crisis for people just to buy bonds to black and white. OK, you know, I'll play your reindeer game. Historically, mm-hmm. that's probably been true. But now with what's going on, I think, and it's, again, this is just my opinion, for people, for, for the participants that matter, let's put it that way, for the institutions, for the driver of things to buy our bonds, you, you need to give them a higher rate of interest. In order for them to take on the perceived escalating risk, there has to be a yield associated with it. And I think part of the reason yields are going higher is because the market is demanding a higher yield in order to buy those bonds, which personally, Carter, I don't think is particularly bullish. And also it gets to money flow, right? I mean, at what point is is the yield attractive or attractive enough for uh, a player thinking out three to five years to reduce some of exposure to equity into uh, treasuries? Or, of course, then there's the $5.5 trillion in money markets that are enjoying very handsome yields. What gets that money off the sort of off the couch. Uh, these are unknowns. But right now, all things held equal, buying one year paper 
is a pretty good deal, um, risk adjusted versus a lot of individual equities. The one thing that I've watched correctly at times, incorrectly other times, is the high yield index, the HYG. And you brought a chart here. So I have been concerned, and again, this just my opinion, that credit, the the put in the market, if there is a put, is for the Fed put, is not in the form of the S&P. I think if there is a Fed put in the S&P 500, it probably comes in somewhere between 3,800 and 4,000. That to me is where the Fed would get concerned about the equity market. Again, that's just my opinion. I think there's a Fed put in one of two places, in the job market, and that's going to come in the form of the unemployment rate going somewhere between four and a half and 5%. I think if unemployment got there, it would wake the Fed up and be, okay, our job is done. Maybe we can start to backpedal or go the other way. Or Worse, in my opinion, would be to something happen in the credit market. And the HYG sort of 74 has been a level, sort of this, this line of demarcation where it gets a little bit dicey. We've traded north of 75 and a half, 76 recently. We're back to about 74 and a quarter-ish, I think. But here we are. So thoughts on the HYG because you brought some charts as well. Sure. I think it's going to be four or five, mostly identical. But the first thing is this is an all-data chart. And the first thing that's um, well, elemental that's obvious is that basically it peaked back in what is 07? That's the S&P high before we went to the financial crisis. And that credit quality, and many uh, fixed income analysts would, uh, would make this point, that credit quality in America and in many of this kind of uh, low quality companies is continuing to deteriorate and has been doing so for the better part of 15, 20 years. But if you look at the next chart, and let's toggle. So let's go back to the original one. Basically, those spikes, when you get those plunges, yes, those plunges quickly are reversed. So it's down and then snaps back a little bit like VIX. But that's not happening this time, right? We're not spiking and ricocheting. We're, we're, we've, we've spiked lower, of course, associated with the 2022 sell-off. And then we're kind of sitting here. And so the question is, uh, where from here? The first thing I want to point out, though, is this is different. And so if you look at this same chart drawn a different way, we are really at a standoff. And if you put some arrows in, and I made them purposely this way, I think it's jump ball. If you look at this really up close, telescoped here and now, right, uh, there's nothing in that chart that indicates which way it will be resolved, other than to say it is one heck of a moment of tension, and you can feel it. Now, um, basic principles of charting, you get to the apex, the formation, and you you run out of runway, right? You can't. Um, so something is likely to happen. My bias is down. We shall see um, based on the long-term chart of HYG or JNK. But it is a perfect uh, moment of equilibrium. Uh, buyers and sellers matched off. Uh, something will come along to um, unlock the standoff. Uh, but for now, uh, equilibrium. So let's go back to the first HYG chart, because you're right to point out that each time we had one of these events, and, and maybe you could bin the chart where it illustrates the, you know, that violent move higher we saw in the back of it. Each time that we saw these moves to the downside, the subsequent bounce, the Fed, the Fed jumped in. right? And I can look at history and say, I know what happened here. I know what happened here. Makes sense. Different this time, and the reason, again, Carter, my opinion, is why we're sort of flatlining here and not having that precipitous spike is because the Fed's not there. As a matter of fact, it's counter to what they did 
all those times ago. Thoughts on that real quick? Well, that's right. And each of those things that were just working backwards, the 2020 plunge is, is COVID. The 2015-16, that was an earnings recession, an industrial recession, negative. Uh, we know the 2011 was the flash crash. And of course, 2008-2009 is the financial crisis. But this time it does have a different look and feel. Also, all within the context and the darn thing peaked in 2007. It's fascinating. I think you know, I'm not suggesting people should trade it. I think we say that all the time, but you should definitely watch it. So anatomy of a trade. I love this. You brought with you another slide. So let's sort of break this down because I think this helps. I think this is very helpful for folks. Well, this was a, 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 a sort of a, what, uh, this week we did a pressing the energy bet, which is a follow on to the August 22nd um, sticking with energy, which itself was a reiteration of the original July 10th, all things energy. In July, energy was out of favor. Oil was uh, 68, 70 a barrel. And um, we just took a, took a shot. Uh, it's played out nicely. Sometimes you get a little luck and a little good timing. And so this week we wanted to reiterate that just to press it. You know, So let's look at the charts uh, and see what we can see. Um, this is oil, and that if you, I've tried to annotate for clients, which are reporters, that at 7.10, the July 10th judgment to bio, you know, that was dodgy. Yes, we were at 68 a barrel, and it was there was nothing really to, but it was, here's what we were picking up on. There was so much talk of recession, oil's going to go to 50, and it was the same extrapolators up at the high. When we were at 130, Wall Street started printing targets of 250. The war is, this is it, nuclear war with Putin, oil will seize up. And then at 65, we got the other way. We said, you know what? We're down 50%. Oil's down 50% from its eye. Let's take the road less traveled. And so those, the July and then the August, if you look at the energy chart for the XLE, um, it was because we were at the lower band of the uh, of the uh, mm -hmm. trend line, right? And then play it back. But now we're breaking out. And I, I do think there's also this. Energy, XLE, of course, is the S&P 500 energy sector. But is it really a sector? All of energy is 4.5% of the S&P. And two stocks, Exxon and Chevron, are almost 50%. So you could say, is it a sector? Well, you say millions of jobs and lots of companies. But the whole sector, as it stands, is only 4.5% of the S&P. And two stocks are basically half of the 4.5%. But energy has been as high as double digits, 9%, 12 15% of the S&P. In 1980, it was the most a highly weighted sector. I just think it's going to be more than 4.5% of the S&P. I agree with you. And we've said this for a while. You know, if you watch Fast Money, if you watch on the tape, anything or listen on the tape, anything we do, we've been pretty steadfast in the energy. And it, it did not look particularly good a few months ago. OIH traded down, I think, 245. Uh, and I get it. It probably coincided with that move down in oil. But, you know, here we are back on the horse. And XLE, if memory serves, I think the all-time high was the all-time high was either side of 100 bucks. We're probably 91, 91 and a half now. I think that goes higher. And OIH is making at least yesterday. I don't know about today, making multi-year highs, and that has a lot of runway left as well. So, I think if I'm right again, a lot of ifs. We don't say we, it's certainly anything, but you know, the way I look at the world, if you know, the market is going to sell off the way I think it will and probably be led by high valuation, high growth names. You're going to see, I think, this re-rotation into the energy space, Carter. So I'm totally with you on this one. And you brought some 
individual stocks with you as well to, in terms of the charts? Yeah, I mean, I think you want to play it thematically, but what I thought we'd look at is a strong stock and a weak stock. So Hess is uh, a strong stock at uh, 52-week highs and multi-year highs, and the lines, I think, draw themselves, meaning do we or don't we break out? That green arrow is a judgment. That's mine. I think we do. It, by contradiction, look at the second, um, uh, a very weak stock. I mean, talk about bombed out, 60 to 15. But if we put some lines in here, it is a textbook bearish to bullish reversal buy. And so uh, I think one should barbell. I'd pick some of the strongest names, Tidewater, Diamond Offshore, uh, and then uh, double back and find some laggards that are now exhibiting impressive relative strength to the sector and bullish price volume correlation. It's interesting. I'm reading the comments again, as is my want to do. And I've said this on Fast Money. I've said it here, and I'll say it again. I think for the energy sector, three things happened that I think accelerated these moves higher. I, the first thing, I, well, I mean, let's put it this way. The first thing was probably ESG. I think the best thing counterintuitively that happened in the energy space was the advent of ESG. It forced so many of these companies to basically operate their businesses more efficiently. And that's been true with, as you said, the big cap integrated names, no question. It put a, micro, it put a microscope under their ass and it forced them to be better operators. The second thing that happened was that minus $39 front month print in crude oil. I want to say three Aprils ago, I might be off by a year or so, but I think folks that trade um, futures know when it happened. That really lit a candle under everybody's ass. And the third thing is the Biden administration. You'd be like, what are you talking about? Again, the fact that the Biden administration, this administration vilified this energy sector, again, once again, it forced them to just operate better and be better companies. So all those things collectively have made this space to me, as counterintuitive as it sounds, very, not only tradable, but very investable. And I think these stocks are going to continue to grind higher. You know, I'm of the belief that there's going to be a reacceleration of inflation. I don't know if you share that, but I think it's going to manifest itself in the energy sector. And I think these stocks, Carter, all can be looked at, especially the levered names. And, and remember, there's also this, it gets down to money flow. I can't tell you how many conversations with individual portfolio managers, both at very large, long only, as well as long, short, who over the past three, five years, they're like, but I don't have to bother with it because it is only 2%, now 3 now 4% of the S&P. If you're a benchmark manager to the S&P 500, you can go to a energy conference and spend three days in Houston, listen to all those answers, you could say, hey, it's only 4% of my benchmark. So you'll remember in school, of course, when they'd say 40% on the final exam, 20% on the midterm, and then 10% on this paper, or this quiz, or on this subject, you know, you could just say, I'll forget that subject. I won't waste any time on it. Maybe I'll get a few points. I'll get it right. Meaning a lot of people just time efficiency, like I don't need to worry about a sector that's only three to five, two to four percent. I'll just I'll own a little bit. But if and as it does start to move, which it has now, of course, you then draw money flow. And that's the issue. Does money flow ultimately get energy back to a weighting that's not and it was literally sub three percent it's now four and a half does it get it to six seven percent i think so jack's asking a question if if inflation is going to reaccelerate, why is gold decelerating well fair it's a fair point i think one of the reasons as you said last night on fast money i think or on our show as rates go higher you know a non-interest bearing asset like gold becomes less attractive that's number one number two you've had strength in the dollar as well which has created a bit of a headwind and 
if in fact inflation is going to reaccelerate, it's odd when people start talking about inflation is exact, probably wrong time to be in gold. I understand all that. I would still submit. I think there's going to be a day in the sun for gold, and I think it's coming soon. Carter, you brought some comparable charts, I think, in terms of the restaurants and what you're seeing. And I think you don't like what you're seeing, particularly in the, in the space. Well, that's right. And you and I worked on this a bit last night. But um, to me, let's, this is what, what I'm hoping to sort of depict here is the, is the really divergence between one area within consumer. If you think about it, the two best areas in consumer have been home builders and then a sort of post-COVID travel stocks, hotel stocks, but also restaurants. So all experience stocks versus things, right? So we've got the S&P 1500, a restaurant sub-industry group, which is McDonald's and Starbucks and Chipotle and Shake Shack and Wendy's, and it goes on and on, right? Um, uh, so, and Darden and, and, and uh, what have you. But what we have here on a 10-year basis is that this area has tripled the performance of the general retailing aggregate as measured by the XRT, because you see what's been going on in Target, 52-week lower, and Dollar General, Foot Locker, all just one disaster after another. But the question is, is this very strong area of the market, um, is it starting to succumb? Uh, I think so. So let's look at not a comparative chart, but three. This is the actual S&P 1500, right, sub-industry group of 21 restaurants. And one way to draw the lines, of course, is to show that it it's a false breakout. It tried to make a new high and couldn't. Another way to draw the lines, of course, is to make the point that it's broken trend. That's a very well-defined trend line in effect since the COVID low. If we put the first two charts together, uh, this is not a good thing, right? You've got a, a, a sort of an attempt to make a new high of failure, so a false breakout or a head fake. Now you're breaking trend. And uh, if you look at the here and now charts, this is uh, really where it starts to get dodgy. The actual restaurant group itself, this is now not a long-term chart. We are literally flirting with breaking that trend line. And if you put in the 150 moving average, you'll see, of course, that we've now started to really roll over. We have all the elements of a bullish to bearish reversal in not only the aggregate, but a lot of individual stocks. And that doesn't augur particularly well for some of the individual names. Um, so we could, you brought some of the individual charts as well. And what I said last night, we can sort of go to the first one here. It's amazing that Chipotle, CMG, is within earshot of its all-time high. And what I said last night, this is a stock we've been bullish on, but at some point, someone's going to wake up and say valuation is ridiculous here and valuation is going to matter. It's not happening yet. Uh, it's been a monster, but I think I think there's almost inevitability that it will. Anyway, that's just my two cents. Let's look at Carter's charts. Carter, go ahead. Well, you'll see there from that one that Chipotle bounced off its 150-day, and so for now, a bit of a reprieve, whereas all the others are starting to undercut. And so we can move through them quickly because it's all the same circumstance. So if you see the McDonald's, right, it is starting to undercut its 150-day, and we can roll through chart, 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 Darden, rolling over. Uh, take a look at Starbucks. Take a look at, um, and I can't remember what we have queued up here. I, I, I have a bunch, but I mean, the point is, this is not a good scenario for an area that's been so strong, starting with those very long-term charts. These are all, uh, well, rolling over, and, and I don't like it. Yeah, and it's interesting. A lot of the people are saying, you know, what about China? What about China? What about Apple? What about Apple? Well, he, let's take a look at Apple. And there's obviously head, you know, it's something we've talked about here on this show. Um, 
and something I've been concerned about. Now, my concern has been unwarranted. I'd be the first person to say that. But what I've said for a while is it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And we saw it. China bans allegedly, but now I think it's being substantiated by a number of different outlets. China bans iPhone use for government officials at work. That is an absolute salvo, without question. You know, if China wants to escalate, they're going to do it. And I've said it. They're going to do it with some of the multinationals. I said, the biggest bullseye on the back of a company finds itself on the back of Apple. And here we are. Personally, Carter, and I think you might actually agree with this, I'm surprised Apple's not down more today on the back of this headline. We'll see how it shakes out. But if you're looking for if you're looking for more worries with the geopolitical risk and the China-US relations that are probably as poor as they've been in five or six decades, look no further than this headline, Carter Braxton Worth. Yeah, it's a big headline, right? Because you can see what the next headline would be. It wouldn't, doesn't take a lot of imagination. Um, and it's important to note that it, remarkably, we're looking at a one-year chart here. Um, Apple's strength, as impressive as it is, Apple's relative performance to the tech sector, to the XLK or whatever aggregate you choose, it peaked in September a year ago. Apple's been underperforming because it dropped so much during the 2022 plunge, the recovery, as impressive as it is, has still not recouped all of the relative losses um, to the sector. Yesterday, um, Dan and Danny were in Chicago. They were at CME Group, and we teased something. We got a great response. So let's look at it again, Carter Braxtonworth. Battle of the Bonds. It starts September 10th. It ends on the 15th. Uh, for the first 100 people to sign up, and by the way, I actually think we probably surpassed that. So now we're just sort of doing it for all of our viewers, all of our listeners. We are going to send you a free water bottle. Market call. Look at that thing. That thing looks, what do the kids call it? Dope. I'm not really sure what that is. CMEgroup.com backslash bonds challenge. Check it out. Sign up. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a fun way. Listen. You're paper trading, but it's a fun way to see how things trade, to understand how futures trade, and to do it within that time frame, Carter Worth. I think it's really cool. And obviously, CME Group uh, does an amazing job, and I think this is something they're very passionate about. So, Carter, you and I both should sign up. I know Danny Moses is in because he thinks he's going to win the whole damn thing. That's right. And it's a good-looking bottle. And it's a good-looking you know bottle. It is a good-looking bottle. Anyway, so that's it. Carter, you are the man. That's a lot of work and 34 minutes of time. Thanks for the heavy lift. Thanks, obviously, our audience. I want to thank FactSet Financial Data and Analytics, powered by tomorrow. Thank you for CME Group for allowing us to promote that. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. We will see you tomorrow, Thursday. And I think EY from SoFi is back. And Butters, who's been like in Maine or something, or Michigan, I don't know where, he might be back too. So it's going to be a fricassee. We'll see you folks later. See you.